says the problem is me. I'm just a small town boy with big American dreams. The world's going crazy and they're lying to us. Don't know who to believe, so in God we trust. We don't trust the news, the government, or pharma We just want freedom that you have that to offer We don't want the lies, the politics, or the drama We just want the life that was promised by our fathers We don't trust the news, the government, or pharma We just want freedom that you have that to offer We don't want the lies, the politics, or the drama We just want the life that was promised by our fathers The man on the news says the problem is me I'm just a small town boy with big American dreams The world's going crazy and they're lying to us Don't know who to believe so in God we trust Alright, so that was a preview of the Chelsea Smollett trial I hope you guys enjoyed that <laughs> Push the bomb Who killed Captain Alex? I, listen Okay, I just needed us to laugh because it it, it was tragic what we saw because there was some really bad acting after the sentence. And the thing is, I was setting things up and I was having a problem, um, you know, getting Rumble to go because I needed to connect with other services as well. So it was it was, it was a headache because I was late to start. Um, I didn't I didn't um start setting up till about like seven. And that's because, okay, so get this, you guys, all right, get this. And I'm gonna, before we get into the trial and see it, okay, I thought you guys would have a laugh with that. I was sitting here laughing hard. <laughs> Can't believe, stop, that someone actually paid to make those movies. Very bad. I can wait till you see Justice Smollett. And remember, he was a very well-paid actor at Empire. I guess he can only dance and, you know, have shenanigans. Uh, oh no, oh, I'm so dead. Okay. So today was an interesting day. I've been working on a few things, um, some new lawsuits and some other stuff. I was totally enjoying, uh, you know, Akbar being put in the corner. Uh, uh, let's see. And then my kids. So they have big, big trucks and like they can't even afford to drive to work. Because it takes like $100 every couple of days just for Carlo to get to work. The gas is just insane. So then we all decided, you know, we were <laughs> So we were all talking and we were like, okay, all of us, maybe we can all pull together and buy a car. And we were like, yeah, we don't have that money. So maybe, and then I thought, hey guys, you know, I need to diversify my credit profile. Why don't we lease a car, right? I'll get the lease and then everybody pays payment. So you guys can use the car because I have a Tesla and I'll take the car whenever I'm campaigning because there's not a lot of chargers around in Ohio. So, um, you know, uh, obviously my kids that are, you know, born in 2000, they're just like, oh, we're just going to go to Carvana. And I was like, you know, that kind of looks okay. We could get a second hand. And I was like, no, fuck. I don't have time for that. I don't have time to, my car broke down and I need it fixed. Like I don't have the availability for that kind of money. So I, I thought I'm going to go lease. So how am I going to do this? My, you know, I don't have like an $800, an $800 credit score. And I'm definitely not going to shell up five, $600 for a monthly payment. That's just insane because that's a commitment. Uh, but obviously between three people, it would be doable, right? The, let's just, you know, uh, you know, we would be able to do it between the three of us. But then I was thinking, 
um, you know, uh, I'm going to, uh, why don't I just go to a car dealership? And so I was thinking, well, that's dumb. I could get pre-approved. So I went online and I did like, um, <laughs> uh, pre-approvals like with Chrysler and GM financial and whatever. And then, you know, you guys in like 2024, I was thinking that I'd swap my Tesla out for like the new Cadillac lyric, right? That looks super sexy, right? And unless, you know, because I'm going to get the Cybertruck for sure, that's that's my hope, right? So I was like, well, if I lease a Cadillac, then I can swap it and get into it and be like, oh, you know, they'll be desperate for people to buy it because people won't want to buy it or lease it. So I was like, you know, I'll do that. And then I could turn my Tesla over and keep it or something like that. This, these are just ideas. So I went... um I went to um, Cadillac and apparently you guys, I didn't know this, um, XT4s are like easy cars so you can like terminate your leases early if you want to get into something, right, else. And so I, I got, you know, discounts, you know, the veteran discount and then there's a Costco discount and everything. So my monthly payment's going to be like $320. I'm thinking of not telling my kids it's $320 and telling them it's $640 so they could give the $320 because they're going to be using it more. But now I just said that on air, so I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> that was an idea. But um, I, I couldn't believe it. Like just paying the first month and the, the title fees, that's how much it would be. So that's pretty interesting. Um, and I went and saw this guy named Steve <laughs> at the, uh, at the Cadillac close to downtown. And that was pretty good, right? <laughs> that was pretty good. So anyway, so that was my day today. Cause while my daughter's out looking at stuff and then Christ was like, yeah, you know, we have a chip shortage and da da da. It's like, yeah, that Niobium, yo. Um, uh, she was like, let's go get something European. I know it's more costly if they break. And I'm like, we're not buying a car. Um, but we can all pull together. You know how kids are when they get excited. And it's like, no, it's not happening. So um, the XC4 actually gets 30 miles a gallon. So I was like, you know, when campaigning starts and I have to drive on the weekends to go places rather than be, have I told you guys a story when we went to the funeral and Ohio. I don't know if I actually told you guys. So I had one, two, three, I think four people in the car. I got a, I got a speeding ticket. Right. And then, um, there were no chargers where we went. So then we went to this, um, school with literally my car on life support with like 20 miles and the car charger was 19 miles away. Right. And I had to charge it there and it was charging like two miles every hour. So for the Tesla. So I was thinking if I'm going to go and campaign in the next couple of months, if I take the Tesla, I will totally find myself in the same position. So I have my Tesla, right? It's, and I'm not getting that lease for me. It's for my kids. They like, we can't afford the gas for both of them driving their gas. They have huge, massive Dodge trucks. You know, like my son-in-law has like these big wheels and extended mirrors and it's like room, room. I think he's even straight piped that thing. Okay. So, um, it, it, it's pretty much for all of us, for them during the week when they go to work. And for me, when I, um, when I go, um, campaigning, cause I don't want to be stranded somewhere in the middle of Ohio and get towed, uh, cause there aren't a lot of chargers. Um, I mean, heading from here to Columbus, there's like one charger somewhere. I don't really need it to get to Columbus, but you know what I mean? So, um, 
the XT4 is what I'm going to lease. And I got it for like 320 bucks a month. That's so awesome. Um, so, you know, the money that they have saved, I'll have them pay the title. <laughs> Mom, you're so bad. And it's like, what? They're going to be using it most of the time, right? So, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to get that done. Even though I know Chrysler Jeep were giving me a better rate and I think the Cherokee was better. Uh, the problem is that I would have, you know, probably kept on to that car. Cause I, when I, when I was renting, when I didn't have a vehicle, because one, you know, I was going through some things and I had to get things sorted out. So I couldn't even have credit. Um, uh, last year. So I was in a very vulnerable position. So all I did was rent uh, vehicles from Enterprise. All I did was drive Jeeps. Um, love those. So I wouldn't turn it in. But um, my Tesla is the best car ever. Um, that's not, that's my car, period. So um, I know I was looking into, my daughter wanted us to get like a stick shift Mercedes because she says, you know, you could get a diesel and you would have to fill it up once every now and then. But no, I just went with that because I was thinking, um, you know, in a few years, uh, I think next year, the Lyric, the Cadillac Lyric's coming out, which is an, a full EV ve vehicle. And that seems really sexy. And I'm thinking if I have the Cybertruck by then, then maybe I'll get the Tesla to trade it in and then give the lease back, which will give me brownie points. So maybe I can get that for cheap. I don't know. I'm thinking. So anyway, uh, that was my day today and um, formulating um, a new lawsuit that I'm going to be filing pro se, of course, on behalf of the people of Ohio. Um, so that was my day today. I hope you guys had a good day. Um, lots of work, lots of law um, and uh, found the words that I needed. You know, it's hard, guys. You know, and this is and this is the thing. They don't want us in the courts, but then on the other hand, they don't want lawyers fighting for you. And so on the 7th of March, and, and I'm writing an article about this, I, I know Axios put a piece out. So Media Matters, as you know, are getting sued by me, right? I'm suing Media Matters too, right? They're in that Dominion case. They're included for defamation. I'm, I'm actually suing them. Media Matters um, is being represented by Mark Elias. Mark Elias, uh, you all know who he is. I don't have to introduce that guy. But um, uh, they created a new foundation that they incorporated on the 7th. And they're highly organized because they had all their board members up, their webpage going. And what they're doing is they're coming after lawyers, that are fighting for the people. So lawyers that are filing lawsuits against vaccines, masks, and election fraud are all getting chased down by this company. And it's being funded by George Soros, by Open Societies. They got a shit ton of money from them. So basically, if you're an attorney and, you know, you file a lawsuit, say, you know, in Wisconsin about election fraud, they're going after your license. They're also putting pressure on the Bar Association to disallow lawyers to um, file cases on mask mandates, vaccine mandates, anything against Biden, anything against their policies. They're filing lawsuits against lawyers, like legit lawyers. And so let me show you this so you can see it yourself. Um, it's it's so horrific. Um and they did this the day before my birthday. And yesterday I wanted to talk about it, but you know, I, I wasn't, 
I was doing something else with you guys, right? That was important. But it's so phantasmical that we live in times where they will literally go after attorneys and tell them what they are allowed to represent. This is where we're at, that they're going after lawyers for filing lawsuits that they don't agree with. This should terrify everyone. Every single person should be terrified about that. Because by them filing such lawsuits against attorneys, it will deter attorneys for representing you if it's not something that benefits the other side. It's horrific. And so while I know a lot of you that wanted to file lawsuits and couldn't find a lawyer, but you were too scared to do it on your own, it was important because this is what happens. This was coming. This is why the people need to take hold of their own destiny and their own voices and make it good. So uh, I'll tell you one thing that I noticed today. Um, I noticed that when reading the law, the key thing is not most lawyers like to copy and paste existing cases. Those are shitty lawyers. They want to find similar cases. I mean, it's the easy street. But now it's 65 project, the 65 project that really looks like a 66, whatever, a bipartisan effort to protect democracy from abuse of the legal system by holding accountable lawyers who engage in fraudulent and malicious lawsuits to overturn legitimate election results and fuel insurrection. This is key. They're going after attorneys. This is the first step. They're going after attorneys that are filing. And of course, Media Matters would be doing it because Media Matters right now is in a lawsuit with me and Dominion. How much do you want to make a bet that in Discovery we're going to find some collusion between the two companies for defamation? Of course, maybe. Now, we all know that Smartmatic, you know, the case with Smartmatic with Sidney Powell went away. It's no longer there. But this is a big deal. And why it's a big deal is because the former majority Senate guy, Tom Daschle, is on the advisory board. This guy was elected into a position to represent the people, and he is all about silencing attorneys to pick whatever they want. So if they can silence attorneys and go after attorneys that are defending people that are filing lawsuits against election fraud, should we stop representing pedophiles? Should we stop representing bad people? Because this is unconstitutional. In fact, while I was reading up on the case that I want to file, I'm thinking there's a case that I want to file for them being even in existence. See, it's unconstitutional if you have a company that tries to stymie your First Amendment right. Who are they to determine what's legitimate or not? Who are they to determine what they consider malicious and frivolous? I think it was malicious and frivolous to spend tens of millions of dollars investigating the Russia hoax that they created. Yet they're going to sit here and create a company and use foreign interest money to go after people. This is the first step. 
Then it's going to be, oh, if you're this, no one's allowed to represent you. Now, I'll say why this bothered me the most. So as you all know, and it's not a secret, in the state of North Dakota, the attorney general had no liking for me. There's maybe, what, 20 lawyers in the city of Minot. When my family was in peril, me and my girls, and I had no one to turn to, every single one of those attorneys, when I was like, hey, um, like I don't know where my, my access to my bank accounts is. I don't know where my identification is. Like, I don't know where everything is and I need help. The police would tell me, yeah, you know, we can only help you with the criminal part of things. Prosecutors would tell me we can only help you with the criminal part of things. That's civil. I said, well, civil means that I need money for a lawyer. I don't have one. And I don't have money because I can't even go to the bank. And every single lawyer refused to help me. Not only that, I qualified for legal aid. And they told me that there was like a conflict of interest. I was shunned away from every single attorney. Any legal help, I was barred from legal help completely. And that was just, you know, me trying to figure out what I'm going to do because, you know, it's not like every day you're going to be like, yeah, I'm just going to call the cops on someone and, you know, <clears throat> you know, whatever, because I didn't know how, how bad it was until I did it. And I had, you know, $2 in my pocket and nobody would help me. And they would constantly tell me it's a civil thing. I'd go to the bank and I'd be like, hey, so that's that money that went in there is mine can I have it? And they're like, yeah, you're not on, you can't, you need permission from your ex to do that. Well, it wasn't my ex at the time. Right. And I was like, all right, well, well, how do I do that? Well, you got to go get a lawyer. And so I know how it is to be in need of representation and maneuvering a situation, especially when you're in shock, especially when you're in dismay and not have anyone to represent you. So, someone said something fun. Jules in MD. I guess I don't understand how someone doesn't know how to get into their bank account. How do you get to that point? Well, I obviously, after he was arrested, he made changes to his account. And he was the primary because I was in litigation and I gave him all my money. And he had access to everything for almost three, four years. Jules, for judging. There you go. I hope that helps you. Um, so the 65 project is just that obviously all you see is, um, people, um, uh, saying, oh, well, they're just going after people that are engaging in fraudulent and malicious lawsuits to overturn legitimate election results and fuel the insurrection. So, um, that doesn't make sense. How do you know what is a fraudulent and malicious lawsuit? Fraudulent militias is what, you know, what they did to President Trump and keep doing and his kids and the people of the United States and, 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 and. So how do they determine what's fraudulent and malicious? That's wrong. And then legitimate election. Who says it's legitimate? You do. So therefore it's legitimate. 
I'm trying to break this down for you so that you understand what they are doing and to fuel insurrection, fuel insurrection. Let's talk George Floyd and all the people they shot and killed while they were doing that. Let's talk about all the damage that the taxpayer dollars had to get thrown at. We got to throw a shit ton of taxpayer dollars to rebuild buildings. They burned down a historical church outside of the White House. Right? All of this. And then they call it bipartisan. Throw the word bipartisan. This, just look at that sentence. See, this is what lawyers do. They break down sentences. Now when you read this sentence, you're like, what the, what is going on here? Who declared Media Matters for America? Because that's who has this, right? David Brock. Um, You know, the all-knowing judge and jury to decide what's fraudulent, what's malicious, what's a legitimate election, and then call it bipartisan. This is only the beginning. After that, it'll be like, we're going to go after lawyers who are representing people that are standing by their rights to, I don't know, be Christian or not give vaccines or color their hair, you know, or keep their hair long or not, or wearing heels at inappropriate times or for this type of crime or for those that do that. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? This is only the beginning. So one thing we have to do is think of a way that we can target organizations that are created that have unconstitutional values. We cannot have them taking money and doing business in the United States. The one way we target this is by every single one of you in your state groups to formulate together and file a complaint with the attorney general of your state and demand that they disallow them from doing business or collecting donations from your state. That's number one. Kick them out of your state. So they have no jurisdiction in your state. That's the one step that you can do as a people without getting too involved, without a lawsuit. You go to your attorney general. All of you file a complaint through the site as consumer protection. This company has no business operating in the United States of America because they are deciding to attack the uh, the American Bar Association to disallow attorneys to be able to represent people on matters they do not agree with. Intimidation of the attorney um, of the American Bar Association in the United States is unacceptable. Hurtling over deep state. Wait on that one. Give me a week. We have that one ready. So the union that I was talking about, guys, hold on to your seats. This shit's about to come real. I'm waiting to get all that paperwork in order. Okay. Been working on it. So don't worry about that. That's a we thing. I'm telling you what a you thing you can do in your state. So those of you in the state of Florida, Arkansas, every single state, all 50 states, you can file that complaint to your attorney general and your consumer division and tell them that you should bar them from doing business. At the same time, you should contact your secretary of state's office and say that there is an organization that is being funded by domestic and foreign funds to intimidate the American Bar Association that represents people in matters that they do not like. This is unconstitutional. Therefore, this should not be happening within our state. And we are asking you to send them notice that they are not allowed to do business in our state. Now you can send them that and they could turn around and say, yeah, well, we're not going to do that. That's fine. All you have to do is then sue and then you get it done. That's it. Cause judges won't take kindly to having a case about a company that says 
that uh, can someone quickly at archive.is drop the link and, and save all these pages so they don't change them because um, I can't do it on my system. Quickly just archive this page. Thank you. Now, one thing you have to understand is that a judge will not take kindly to an organization that is trying to intimidate attorneys from representing the people. You bring up that argument in federal court, they're fucked and they're banned from your state. This is all you have to do. So what I'll do is I will formulate the paragraphs as cookie cutters. And then tomorrow morning, well, tomorrow afternoon, not morning, because tomorrow morning I have to go to the doctor. I have a bit of a medical issue. Um, so tomorrow afternoon, I will be um, posting a paragraph. I mean, most of you can do it yourselves, you know, from the show, just rewind and just listen to the words that I said and make it up custom to your state that a company that is that's primary goal is to intimidate the American, the, the attorneys of the American Bar Association, or say, for example, if you're in the state of Florida, a company um, that is foreign, uh, domestic and foreignly funded to intimidate members of the Florida Bar Association slash American Bar Association has no business conducting business within our state. They should not be allowed to collect payments, enact as in as an organization or with their lawyers. They cannot um, practice those things in our state. That, 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 that's basically it. And then we'll do the judge thing because I like to use the courts. Because, see, you're not going to get an attorney that's going to represent you because they know that this type of fuckery is coming. And so what we have to do is make sure that we're covered. There's no way they can bar us from the courts. I mean, oh, I shouldn't have said that out loud. You're going to see in the next few months what they're going to do with the judicial system, what laws they're going to try to pass. It's going to really piss you off. And they're doing it on purpose because they want blood. So that I wanted to show you. Now let's get into the, um, the juicy portion of today, which is pretty interesting. Um, let's listen to what the judge ruled. I'm a little bit pissed that he only got a few months in jail, but, and then the rest probation, he should have gotten it all in jail, but I want you to look at the bad acting. You may give him advice, but I need to hear from this directly because it's his decision. So this is, do you want to say something or would you rather not say anything? All right. All right, we're at the, at the end of the road here. This matter has been pending in the criminal justice system for three years, approximately. It's been approximately two years on this particular docket. The original indictment that was returned by the Cook County State Attorney's Office. There's a quick dismissal that occurred in this case that caused tremendous consternation in the community and to this day uh, is a basis of great confusion and misunderstanding and mistrust. In any event, some things happened uh, after the first dismissal, the uh, only dismissal on the case after the first indictment. People were very upset. One person came forward in particular, and that person, of course, is Sheila O'Brien. Sheila O'Brien is a former retired appellate court justice in the state of Illinois. She came to court as a common citizen without credentials, just, just by herself. And she said she had a grievance and she wanted her grievance heard. And she thought that uh, the handling of the case by the state attorney's office of Cook County was so upsetting that she was losing sleep. And, and she explained in her petition all the reasons that she thought that a special prosecutor had to be appointed. 
not to necessarily indict or do anything in particular, but just to look at this and give it a fresh look because something appeared to be wrong. Case ultimately got assigned to Judge Michael Toomey. And I can say that among his peers, among his fellow judges, Michael Toomey is considered cream of the crop. He's a long-standing veteran judge and a judge longer than I've been a judge. He sat in this building for many years. He sat on the appellate court of Illinois. He's the current head of the juvenile justice system. He, is, he has been a long-standing judge who has a reputation for knowledge, integrity, honesty, and always knowing what the right thing to do is. He took this matter under advisement and hearings were conducted. And after all these hearings were conducted and he listened to both sides, he heard from the state attorney of Cook County, he heard from Ms. O'Brien, he recognized that there was confusion in the public. There was concern that the confidence in the criminal justice system locally here uh, was at risk and may have been damaged and that the case required a second look. And Michael Tuman, in his wisdom, sought out the proper, what he thought to be the right person to address this. He identified Dan Webb and the Winston Strong law firm uh, as the people that might be able to take on the task. Dan Webb and Winston Strong agreed to take on the task. And as they already indicated, they did this pro bono, which means they did it for free. I don't know that at the time they signed up for this, that they had any idea that it was going to be as work intensive as this case has become. This case took several years. And we were slowed down by COVID a little bit, but the amount of pre-trial motions that were filed were exhaustive. I have never, other than death penalty cases, which I used to preside over, seen anything like the extent of filing pretrial motions. And I'm not faulting the defense for filing many motions. I will just say that this case uh, received as much attention and was gone over every little bit of it by a fine-tooth comb as thoroughly uh, as any case I've, I've ever seen before. The stacks of pleadings are high. I've got stacks on my desk uh, that are unprecedented. And we had to wade through all of them, and it took a long time to do that. And there was a tremendous amount of uh, attorney uh, manpower, billable hours that, uh, that were lost uh, by the Winston Strong firm. And they did it selflessly. They did it because they thought they needed to do the right thing. All I can say is a member of the judiciary, thank you, because that was very, very extraordinary. And, and I have no idea what the amount of billable hours are, and I, I can only imagine, but I think it is, it is huge and, and truly significant. The other event, what happened here is that after uh, Mr. Webb and his team uh, reviewed the case, they had several assignments, one of which was to, to look into the conduct of the state attorney's office, and they re returned a report to Judge Tuman about that, their findings about that, another about the Chicago Police Department, and they're handling the case, they did that. But what's relevant here, of course, is that they went to another grand jury, and they returned a second indictment. And the second indictment ultimately by random got assigned to this particular court and we came here we've been here for a couple years now well the pretrial motions have been resolved a trial by jury was held the defendant was found guilty of five to six counts of felony disorderly conduct class four offenses our post-trial motions have now been resolved the pre-sentence investigation has been completed and we're at the final step of proceedings on the trial court level of the criminal case and that's sentencing let me talk first about the sentencing range, because I think there may be some misunderstanding, at least how the court uh, assesses the sentencing range. This is a class four felony. This is the lowest class felony in the state of Illinois. I will note 
that legislatures throughout the country, in Illinois in particular, have constantly cut into judicial discretion and forced us to have mandatory sentencing under different circumstances. We have to do this and we have to do that and uh, try to have some kind of cookie cutter justice. But that does not exist in this case for me. I am left unfettered. Under Illinois law, the range of sentence in this case is as follows. Mr. Smollett is looking at a probationary term of up to 30 months. He can receive time in the county jail as a condition probation of up to 180 days. He can be ordered to perform community service, ordered to participate in behavioral classes, ordered to pay restitution, ordered to pay a fine. He's also subject to a penitentiary sentence of what I find to be one to three years. Now there's talk about, well, what about five counts? Shouldn't he get to be at least eligible for a 15 year sentence? There are ways to analyze Illinois law and say that in a case where there are five counts that consecutive sentences might be required or might be at least considered. I don't believe that I could ever make the findings that are necessary in Illinois law, and I'm not gonna have a long dissertation about it, but I don't think those findings would apply. I don't think Illinois law for the facts I have before me would allow for consecutive sentences. So as far as I'm concerned, the penitentiary sentence, uh, should there be one, would be one to three years. I'm mindful that there's acute public interest in this case. We have television cameras that they want to be here and they are here. People are watching. People seem to care passionately for varieties of reasons about this case. And, and the reasons are, uh, are, are many. And let me be clear that the sentence that I put down today and render down to Mr. Smollett is not in any way, shape or form to assuage any public sentiment uh, in any, any form at all. I'm listening to things that were brought to me in court today, things, uh, people that have participated in the aggravation and mitigation uh, portions of the presentation today, but this is not for the public. The sentence that's gonna be rendered today is gonna to be strictly for Mr. Smollett. It's gonna be fashioned for him. And when a judge sentences somebody, and I've been doing this for quite a while now, you have to look at both the crime that was committed and the person that committed it. How did the person get here? Who is this person? What is the crime? You put them together, you look at the sentencing range, and you try to find something that is just and fits and makes sense and that is right. And that's what we're going to do. Let me tell you, Mr. Smollett, I know that there is nothing that I will do here today that can come close to the damage you've already done to your own life. You've turned your life upside down by your misconduct and shenanigans. You've destroyed your life as you knew it. Uh, and there's nothing that any sentencing judge could do to you that can compare to the damage you've already caused yourself. So who is Jesse Smollett? Who are you? And how, out of all people in the world, did you get to be here? sitting in the courtroom of Chicago at a sentencing hearing, convicted of faking, hoaxing, racial and homophobic hate crimes. How in the world did this happen? Well, there are ironies in this case, and the ironies are many and they are profound. And I'm talking about the testimony I heard under oath from Mr. Smollett, corroborated uh, in large part by the pre-sentence investigation. Mr. Smollett chose to take the witness stand, which of course is his right. He took an oath and he got in the witness stand and the first thing he did was to introduce himself to the jury. He wanted the jury to know who he was, where he came from, what he was about. And I heard it on the witness stand and I heard it corroborated today by the witnesses that came and, and testified on his behalf. There's no question, Mr. Smollett was born into a mixed race family. His mom is an African-American woman. His dad was a white Jewish man. 
They had, there were six siblings. And if you can say anything about this family, and we're talking about a very, very tight-knit family, a, a village that, that was always uh, in sync with each other, that cared about each other, was completely, wholly supportive of each other. You know that this family knew about matters about social justice more than anything else. That's what the family stood for. It is part of the fabric of their existence. I know that Justice Millett grew up knowing to be sensitive to matters about racial discrimination, any kind of discrimination, any kind of social injustice. As a matter of fact, I'm learning more about it uh, as we're going on in the letters I've been receiving and the testimony I've heard today. He's been doing this all his life. He doesn't just talk the talk. He's walking the walk. He's out there. He's advocating. He's involved in the community. He cares deeply about social justice issues. And for you now to sit here convicted of hoaxing, hate crimes, racial hate crimes, and homophobic hate crimes. The hypocrisy is just astounding. Don't know where to begin. I'll remember one thing that, that will always stick in my mind, and I've been involved in so many trials over the years, but something happened in this trial that, that it was remarkable, and it talks about your sensitivity to uh, issues of social justice. You're on the witness stand. You're being cross-examined. Your liberty is at stake. It is your criminal trial. Mr. Webb is winding through some things on now here's where it gets good. I know a lot of people are complaining about the volume. I can't fix that. But this is where it gets good. Remember, the judge is putting out the reasoning behind what he's about to sentence him with. He's explaining to the people how he had to learn about this. Because remember, he's white, so they're going to attack him for that. right? <laughs> so pay attention, because this is where the judge comes in cross-examination and he, he's going through some social media uh, communications and whether it was Instagram or chat or, or text, a little quibbling about that, that doesn't matter. But Mr. Webb found a, a line that he wanted to confront you with. He said, didn't you say, and he used a word starting with the letter N, meet me at this place at this time, and I'm paraphrasing. And rather than just answer the question, which what is what witness is supposed to do and expected to do in their criminal trial, you stopped the proceedings. You said, Mr. Webb, out of respect for all the African-American people in this courtroom, you should not be using that word. And I was, I was amazed. But it showed, and I'm not talking about the, the parrying and, and the gamesmanship that may go on between a prosecutor and a witness on the stand. Uh, that, that's not why I'm, I'm telling this, uh, recalling this event. But what I'm talking about is how sensitive you were to any kind of slight. That anybody, if the wrong words come out of somebody else's mouth, you're going to get up and speak up and complain about it, and and make sure that they know that uh, that they're not behaving the way you're supposed to behave. So you know better than anybody else that these are serious matters. They're serious to you. They're clearly serious to you, and as your whole family. And for you to be here now, convicted of these hate crimes, uh, it's just astonishing. Faking hate crimes. So why did this happen? That's a good question. I think that's the question on everybody's mind. There's some conjecture you did it for the money. Frankly, I do not believe that you did it for the money. You were making, the evidence showed, close to $2 million a year when this happened. I don't think money motivated you at all. But the only thing I can find the motivation was the lynching bill. The motivation was the lynching bill. Let's remember that. That you really craved the attention and you wanted to get the attention and you were so invested in issues of social justice and you knew that this was a sore spot for everybody in this country. You knew this was a country that was slowly trying to heal 
past injustices and current injustices and trying to make a better future for each other. And it was a hard road. And you took some scabs off some healing wounds and you ripped them apart for one reason. You wanted to make yourself more famous. And for a while it worked. Everybody was talking about you. The lights are on you. You were actually throwing a national pity party for yourself. And why would you do such a thing? Why would you, I, I understand you crave the attention so much, but why would you betray something like social justice issues, which you care so much about? The only thing I could conclude is that, is, and I acknowledge there are wonderful sides to you. They're, they're very giving and charitable and loving sides to you, but you have another side of you that is profoundly arrogant and self, selfish and narcissistic. That's the only thing that can be concluded. And that bad side of you came out during the course of all these events. Let me talk about hate crimes for a minute. I've been a criminal judge for many years. And I've heard many victims of crimes testify in front of me. And any victim of a crime, no matter what the crime is, they are demoralized by what happens to them. It doesn't matter if you're injured unjustifiably, if somebody hurts you and it maybe uh, cripples you or damages you uh, in, in some fashion that's going to be uh, long-standing injuries, if your property is stolen, your vehicles are stolen, people go into your homes, your possessions are, are, are stolen, uh, people do all kinds of terrible things. It is a demoralizing experience. And sometimes it's the worst experience that anybody can, can ever uh, go through in their entire life. And then if it turns out that the motivation for the criminal to do something bad to you was because they hate you, they hate you because of your race, because of your ethnicity, because of your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion, your age, your disability. If that was the reason for it, it is exponentially worse. There is nothing worse than to be a victim of a hate crime. It is the worst thing that can happen, especially in our country with all our history and all that we're going through now to try to get around some of these issues. Hate crimes are the absolute worst. And I believe that you did damage to real hate crimes, to hate crime victims. There are people that are actual, genuine, Victims of hate crimes that you did damage to. These are people that are, have a difficult time coming forward. They may be mistrustful. They may not want to bring it to the attention of the community or first responders. Uh, there may be some trepidation. I don't know for sure how much damage there was. I don't know how this is going to impact other people, if they're going to be hesitant to come forward because they're going to think that they're going to be accused of acting like you and, and doing a stunt like you pulled here. I don't know if first responders are going to be more uh, doubtful and skeptical of people that come forward, real victims of hate crime, because of what you did here. Uh, I'm hoping it's not that way. Now, I'll show one of the ironies in this case, and I find this pretty profound. I got letters from people that advocate about victims of hate crime their entire lives. They devote their lives to this. I'm talking in particular, Derek Johnson president of the NAACP, Reverend Jesse Jackson, an icon here in Chicago. No, no introductions necessary. The NAACP? You mean the NAACP that had a president of their chapter in Washington that was a white woman pretending to be a black woman? I just want you to pay attention to what he's saying because this judge didn't want to sentence him. This was an agreement. I want you to be very, very careful in listening how and what he's saying. They devote their whole lives to addressing issues about social injustice and hate crimes. And they are here today asking me to show you mercy. And I take that seriously. I find it profound. 
I take it seriously. And I know that they're in a better position than myself to educate the public about that topic, about the damage you've done to real victims of hate crime. Uh, and I am confident that because of all the attention that you've got garnered here on this case, that they are going to seize the opportunity and they will educate the public and they'll be talking about this and they'll try to mitigate some of the damage that you've caused to real victims of great hate crimes and they're better positioned to do it than I am and I will defer. But I will acknowledge that you have done some real damage. I'm going to talk about your premeditation. Again, I've been a criminal judge for many years and I know that people end up where you are right now, awaiting sentencing on their criminal trial. And how did they get to court? How did that happen? There's some people that wake up in the morning, they have no intention of doing anything wrong. They're, they're not looking to do anything criminal. That's the last thing on their mind. But there are crimes of impulse that happen. Road rage, a barroom fight, bumping into somebody, words are exchanged that uh, somebody finds insulting, and sometimes weapons are available, and the results can be horrific. And they can be permanent. And people are sitting here and they're, they're wondering themselves, how did I get here? I, I wasn't looking for trouble. But trouble just seemed to find them. And crimes and themselves. And when I'm saying that I have to put the person and the crime together and try to mix them and understand uh, who it is that committed this crime uh, within the sentencing range, and, and that's part of my job to do, I consider how the person got here. So but this is not a crime of impulse. There are also crimes of opportunity walking down the street. Somebody, oh, somebody, they left uh, uh, the keys in the car with the motor running. So listen, while all of you are complaining that he had this whole long talk, listen to what he's saying. He's justifying the sentence he's giving him. Shit, my volume's like super loud compared to his because I put it as hard as I can, as high as I can for you guys to hear him. I'm so sorry. So the judge is explaining to those that are coming after him why he's sentencing him. Okay. He's like, listen, I'm a judge. There's something called, you know, a passion of a crime and passion that just happens. He's explaining that Jussie planned this. Remember, he wrote himself that serial killer letter and sent it to himself at the studio first. Then he paid people, right? Listen carefully. Just listen. He's, he's trying to justify what he's doing because his hands are tied with the law. And this was the deal. And they told him you need to get him off. And this is what he's doing. Listen to what the judge is saying. Just listen. And they take the car or they're in the department store and they see someone put the credit card on this side and they go to uh, adjust their baggage on the other side and grab the credit card. Those are crimes of opportunity. They didn't wake up thinking they're going to commit a crime, but something just uh, looked, looked too tempting to them. They use very bad judgment, and then they get in trouble, they get caught, and here they are. But then there are crimes of premeditation. Mr. Smollett, that's what you are all about here, crime of premeditation. You did wake up in the morning thinking you were going to do something bad and something wrong. And I know, and I know more today about this than I ever did before, that there are some wonderful things about you. And I know how people, they cherish you and they cherish your relationships and they cherish the good works that you've done. And they love you sincerely and deeply. And they're not faking, they're not lying when they talk to me about uh, their feelings about you and the good things that you've done. But you had that dark side and this is what happened here. You premeded this case uh, to an extreme that, that is, that's amazing. You wrote a script, the script involved words. You're gonna encounter me on the street Yell out empire, N-word, F-word. You're going to hit me. You're going to beat me up. You're going to put bleach on me. 
I'm going to put a noose around my neck. It's a script that you wrote. Now, it's not a good script, especially for uh, Streeterville in Chicago. It's questionable, but it's a script that you wrote. You picked out the actors. You chose the Ocean Darrow brothers. And why did you do that? Because you knew them. You trusted them. They idolized you. You're an established actor in a serious television uh, production of Empire. They were kind of hangers on there. They're trying to get jobs as extras, maybe a little speaking part here and there. But they, you were mentoring them. You were helping them. They wanted your advice. They would do anything for you. They thought you were, you, you were one of the greatest people in the world to know and that you could help them in their careers. They're in great shape. They gave you a little advice about diet and exercise, but they idolized you and they would have done anything for you. And you chose them because you knew that you could trust them, that they were loyal to you. You paid them advance by check. Not necessarily a good idea, but it was your idea. It was part of the plan that you would pay them in advance. And the, and the check was out there. The check was shown into evidence. That was part of your premeditation. You chose a date. You chose a time. You chose a location. You had props procured. You gave them a $100 bill and had them get the... The supplies. What are the supplies in this case? Get masks. Nobody should see you. We're going to, we're going to say that you're white, uh, but you're, obviously the Ocean Darrow brothers are, are not white. We're going to cover your faces in masks. We're going to have a red hat because that's going to indicate MAGA country. We're going to get a rope that we're going to use as a noose. We're going to procure some bleach. You're going to have the supplies. And you had all that together, and then you did rehearsals. You picked them up and you did drive-bys. You drove around and around the block. You picked them up in Lakeview in their neighborhood and some distance away. You went to Streeterville where you were living and you showed them. You're going here, you're going there, and you're going over the lines. You're going over the script with them so they would memorize the script. You're indicating which brother. You're, you're the one that's going to hit me. Uh, you're the one that's going to put the noose around my neck and pour the bleach on me. This was planned. This was premeditated. Premeditated the extreme. And I find that your extreme premeditation in this case is an aggravating factor to me. Let's talk about the incident itself. It's all set up. Gaussian Darrow brothers are on board. Your plane is running late. Now you had a chance right then and there to think, okay, I'm really late, I'm four hours late. This can't go down. It's freezing in Chicago. We're on the verge of a polar vortex. You might've just thought about it and said, you know, maybe it's not in the cards. Maybe, maybe the karma is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this, but no, no, no. You double down. You start communicating with the brothers through social media. Now, whether it was by texts or chats or Instagram, public or private, one way or another, you kept in touch with them. And there was some quibbling about the, the specifics about how you kept in touch with them, but they knew what time you were coming in. And now the time is pushed back to two o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold weather. It's double digits below zero at two o'clock in the morning. You have to have a reason to be out on the street. And the reason you chose is you uh, come up with the story that you needed to, to get some eggs at Walgreens at 2 o'clock in the morning. And if not that, you're going to go to Subway and get a sandwich and a salad and, and get something to eat at 2 o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold. You did one more thing. You got the Ocean Darrow brothers. Now, they're, they're on board with you. You're using them as your patsies. You have... Your friend, you get your friend Brandon on the phone, and here's a man, a professional man, that's trying to help you in your career. 
you're not sure what, what town he's in, if he's in Australia or not, but you get him on the phone and he's going to be your patsy also because he's going to listen and be uh, around on the phone to hear that you're being attacked by somebody. Now, he doesn't know what's going on. That's really not an attack, but he's going to be able to corroborate your story. So you're getting that together. You got Brandon on the phone. You're out on the street ostensibly to get some subway. You get some subway and you're walking to where this is supposed to take place. Now, the Oshendero brothers, they're getting ready too. And they're doing this because he wanted them to do it on the sneak. No cell phones involved. Make sure nobody sees you get there. And what they think is uh, some kind of clever way of, of getting there, they have an Uber picker pick them up from their home in Lakeview. They take the Uber to Old Town. It's a different neighborhood. They get out of the Uber, they get into a cab. Now the cab is supposed to go to Streeterville, but not to the scene where this is supposed to happen, a few blocks away. So nobody actually sees them get off, uh, get out of the cab, and, and this works out the way you want it to work out. So they get there a little early, they're walking around, they're sitting on a bench for a minute, but at two o'clock, the time that you said this is supposed to happen, at the place you said it was supposed to happen, at the moment you said it was supposed to happen, they appear. So you're talking to Brandon on the phone, you have your subway in hand, and they follow the script. Hey, Empire, word with the letter N, word with the letter F, there's a scuffle. They pour bleach on you. Brandon's listening to this. They attempt to put a, roost, a noose around your neck during the scuffling. You're, you're getting a little abrasion and scrape on your face. A car goes by and the brothers take off. They leave. They never did get the noose around your neck. So what do you do? You gather your belongings. You get the cell phone. You, you're talking to Brandon. Hey, did you get jumped? Yeah, I got jumped. I got mugged. Did you hear what happened? trying to make sure that he heard the words that were spoken. You grab your food and you took the noose that they never did get around your neck and you put it around your own neck. I repeat, you put the noose around your own neck. You go home. Video footage shows that when you walk into your residence, you have this noose dangling loosely around your neck. You go into your apartment, the police are called, the police arrive. The first officer on the scene is Chicago police officer, Mohammed Bey, in full uniform. The first responder of the first responders. His body cam is on. He sees you. And now he sees that that noose is around your neck, but it's not the way that you walked into the house. Now the noose is up at your throat. You've maneuvered the noose and you've made it look worse than it was. This is part of your plan. Officer Bay gets a simple question, what happened? And then you start to lie. And you haven't stopped lying ever since. You've been lying and lying and lying about this case, and that's why you're here today. You want to fake an incident on the street, try to get some attention at work, try to have somebody else feel sorry for you. That would never have got you here. The problem was you lied to the police, and you caused all kinds of consternation. You caused a major investigation to take place which got many people involved and caused great stress throughout the city uh, and throughout the entire community here. And that's the problem. That's why you're here now. Those were the crimes you're convicted of. Not the shenanigans out there, but the lying about it, making it up. And that's why we're here now. We repeated your lies at the hospital. Six counts were put together. The jury found you guilty of five of them. One was a little bit different than the others. And I understand that. Let me say, from my vantage point, and I was obviously here at every stage of this trial, 
I thought the uh, jury's verdict was uh, accurate, correct, uh, wholly corroborated, but could only be described as overwhelming evidence of guilt against you for lying. That's the crime you're here for, lying to the police. Well, Officer Bay took this very seriously. He said, that's a horrible thing that happened. And he started the process of, of uh, police investigation, detectives got involved, you ended up at the hospital. All things were, uh, were starting to happen and this word got out. And you're not just any person, you have a little bit of celebrity about you. You were uh, known in some circles as a, a very competent uh, actor, uh, a really good actor in a very serious uh, television production called Empire and people knew about this. And because you're a celebrity and because you've been so active in all these social justice causes. And this is what is so, so uh, unbelievable about this case, that you of all people are, are here convicted of hoaxing hate crimes. You who know better, who are out there in the world trying to be uh, something for the good uh, in social justice causes, that you ended up here right now like this. It's crazy, but, but you know people in high places, elected public officials, they reacted. You knew mainstream journalists, they reacted. You became the first page, your, your front page news. You're talked about in, in the halls of Congress. People are th talking about making laws to prevent what happened to you to happen to anybody else. People on, on mainstream media are decrying what happened. What kind of country is this? How could they do this to Jesse? I, we know Jesse, he's such a gentle guy. He's the guy that was described to me by all the, the family and friends that I heard from today. And I believe that Jesse exists. But you use them as your patsies too. They were giving you the national pity party you wanted. They're putting you on the front page. All the attention is on you. People talk about social injustice. Your name was coming up first, which is exactly what you wanted. But, but you used them. If anything, people in, in those positions, elected public officials, mainstream journalists, their credibility is everything to them. And you didn't care that you might be damaging it. You did damage to them because Again, there's a side of you that has this arrogance and selfishness and narcissism that's just disgraceful. Your plan worked, of course, until it didn't. We're in Chicago. You lived here for five years working on the, uh, on the Empire show. And you have to know, as well as anybody that lives in Chicago, the Chicagoans, they love their city. They're fiercely loyal to the city. And believe me, Chicagoans know we don't all agree with each other uh, on a lot. There are all kinds of disagreements on what our city should be, what the vision should be for the future. There's even disagreements about what our past was like. But despite all the disagreements and all the things that are not right with Chicago, it's sweet home, sweet home to Chicago, to the Chicagoans. I paused it. We're going to get back to that. Because he talked about Chicago. And I think we should see, you know, sweet Chicago in <laughs> In what it's in, in in what's happening there, because a lot of people aren't talking about this, so I think we should. So, um, Mayor Beetlejuice is actually being sued. Listen, why? A defamation lawsuit filed against the city of Chicago and Mayor Lori Lightfoot. The politically explosive complaint alleging Lightfoot blocked a potential compromise with Italian-Americans over the controversial Columbus statue. Some of the explicit language in the court documents is raising eyebrows tonight. WGN's Julian Cruz is in Chicago's Little Italy community with reaction. Julian? 
Well, Dina and Ray, Italian-American community leaders say that if the allegations are true, they're deeply disappointed with the mayor who is accused of making extremely offensive and vulgar remarks about Italian-Americans back in October during a private Zoom session at City Hall with a Park District lawyer and others. Mayor Lightfoot, do you have anything to say? Are you going to talk to the Italian-American community? Mayor Lori Lightfoot not taking questions after a downtown event in the wake of a defamation lawsuit filed yesterday in Cook County Circuit Court on behalf of now former Park District Deputy Counsel George Smirniotis. George is a Greek, by the way. Smart guy, too. And I was just flabbergasted. Community leader Ron Onesti says if the allegations are true, Chicago's mayor didn't act in good faith wait a minute, wait when a it minute. comes to delicate negotiations over last... Did you guys hear me what I said? No, I was talking. The guy was Greek um, that filed it. And the guy that he talked to, Onesti, is Greek. But you know what she said? She said, I have the biggest dick in Ohio. That's what she said. No joke. Fastball's Columbus Parade after Italian-Americans sued the city, then tried to reach a compromise with the Park District in order to display a Columbus statue at the parade for just 20 minutes. You know, a good faith gesture would be allowing us to utilize the statue for the Columbus Day Parade because our community was bruised. We felt slapped in the face. You may remember back in 2020, unrest over the Grant Park statue, Columbus, a controversial figure to many for what historians say was a brutal subjugation of Native Americans. As a result, Chicago's mayor ordering the removal of several Columbus statues across the city. But in what the lawsuit alleges was a profanity-laced Zoom call with the mayor last October, the Park District's deputy counsel bearing the allegedly defamatory brunt of a mayoral tirade. You bleeps, what the bleep were you thinking, she's alleged to have said. You make some kind of secret agreement with Italians. You're out there measuring your blank with the Italians, seeing who's got the biggest blank. The mayor pictured here at today's gathering of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, verbally attacking then-Park District lawyer George Smirniotis on the Zoom call, according to the lawsuit. Where did you go to law school, she's alleged to have said. Did you even go to law school? Do you even have a law license? Smear notice claiming that Lightfoot damaged his reputation with allegedly false and outrageous statements calling his professional integrity into question. A reaction to one is one of almost complete surprise uh, that the mayor would use that language. Uh, referring to the Italian-Americans. Enrico Marabelli says the allegedly crude and disrespectful references to private parts said to have been delivered by the mayor, extremely hurtful to Italian-Americans. Well, I, I think if we learn anything from this, we learn that if you have a conversation about privates, it doesn't always remain private. The mayor allegedly adding, I am trying to keep Chicago police officers from being shot, and you were trying to get them shot. My bleep is bigger than yours and the Italians, and I have the biggest bleep in Chicago. Onesti says none of this was necessary. We're Chicagoans. That's our mayor. And for our mayor to be talking about any ethnic group or any group of people that are in her constituency to, to that degree, I just hope it's not true.
Now, Corporation Council refusing a request for comment, telling us that since this matter is now being litigated, they will not be commenting on this. And no word from George Smear Notice, who says in the lawsuit that he suffered emotional distress as a result of this incident. He was unable to perform his job, and thus he says he was forced to resign in February. In Little Italy, Julian Cruz, WGN News. Whoa, she had him lose his job. But the judge is like, you know, Chicagoans. They love Chicago and they don't like this stuff, right? Or anything like that. Now let's go back to the bad acting. Chicagoans are fiercely loyal to their city. The Chicagoans have one thing in common with Vic Briand, that there's no misunderstandings. Everybody's on the same page. And that page is crime is a problem. It is a major problem. Nobody disagrees. And we know that police resources, they are valuable. They're limited. Detective resources are precious and they cannot, cannot be squandered. And what you did because you were selfishly, arrogantly and narcissistically bringing attention to yourself. It's the only reason you could have been doing such a crazy thing that you did was you took away a lot of resources from other places from other real victims of real crimes. You used up the police resources for your own benefit. Uh, and that's a big problem here. What you did is you created what we call around here a heater. What's a heater? A heater is a case that when it's reported to the public, the public conscience is shocked, shocked to such an, uh, an extreme that the public is demanding that the police solve this crime here, right now, right here, right now. Everything else has to take second place. The heater has to be addressed and you created a heater and boy did they put on an investigation and i know that i've been listening to chicago police officers and listening about police investigations for many years it's certainly not a perfect police department uh, it's perhaps unfairly maligned in some uh, respects uh, as well i'll match uh, the homicide detectives here against any in the country for uh, their competence and thoroughness not a question about that, but what they did in this case is extraordinary. I have never seen, even in some murder cases, the amount of police work that went into this investigation. You did exactly what you didn't want to happen. You put, they put so many police resources into this. When I say what you didn't want to happen is you never wanted this case solved. You thought that somehow you'd be able to skate by and nobody would ever know what really happened here. And you're gonna walk away from this and it didn't go down like that at all, of course. So they solved the case. And what happened? Turns out that you're not a victim of a hate crime. You're not a victim of a racial hate crime. You're not a victim of a homophobic hate crime. You're just a charlatan pretending to be a victim of a hate crime. And that's shameful, especially from the family you got brought up with, with your family values. It's so sick. The damage you've done to yourself is way beyond anything else that can happen to you from me or any other judge that could be sentencing you in this criminal case. You are now a permanently convicted felon. Your family who loves you and supports you, I only want to use the word forgive because forgiveness isn't even necessary. They're with you so much. They're so tight-knit, but you have to live with the fact that you really put them through a ringer. You've embarrassed your valuable friends in high places, elected public officials, people in the media, You've embarrassed them. You have to live with that. I don't know if those relationships 
relationships can be repaired. You become toxic in your own workplace. Your career uh, future is uncertain at very best. It was really on a rocket ship uh, to success, and now you've, you've turned yourself into riches to rags, and it's so unfortunate. Your very name has become an adverb for lying, and I cannot imagine what could be worse than that. People talk about uh, situations where somebody's uh, lying and trying to manipulate and maneuver a story, and, and your name comes up. It's, oh, pulling a justice, something like that. That's awful. You're the butt of jokes. Comedians, mainstream talk show hosts, they make jokes about you. They do sketch, uh, sketches about you. I, I can't imagine anything worse than that. Now, this is all self-inflicted. These are things you did to yourself. This is self-damage. Well, some people may think that what you did is funny and that there's some room for humor or jokes about it. But I assure you, this court does not. I don't think there is anything funny at all about hate, uh, hoaxing and faking racial hate crimes. Hoaxing or faking homophobic hate crimes. I think that is disgraceful. There is nothing funny about it. There's no humor in what you did whatsoever. All because you're selfish, arrogant, narcissistic. At least you have that side in you that, that came out through this case and, and you kept doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. It's not funny. It's not funny at all. And I'm your sentencing judge. And I don't find it funny. So that, where are we at? We're at the end. You are convicted of a class four felony. It's presumptively probationable, but we have some real serious aggravating factors here. Your premeditation, which I've described. The pain you've caused to real victims of hate crimes, which I've described. The damage you've done to the city of Chicago, I've heard. It's been, it's been talked about. I'm mindful of the city's request for restitution. And I, I, if I'm going to fashion that, uh, consider that request, I have to fashion the sentence accordingly. And above all, the capper of all cappers, your performance on the witness team. This could only be described as pure perjury. You got on the witness stand, you didn't have to, you did, you certainly have a right to, but you committed hour upon hour upon hour of pure perjury. And I find all those to be ample factors. If this court were to decide that the things you did, that any kind of probationary sentence would deprecate the seriousness of the offense and you need to go to the penitentiary, there, the record is clear and it would support it. But I'm looking at everything in its totality. And I agree. It's told to me today. You can't judge everybody by one bad thing they've done in their life. I don't know if it's the only bad thing, but it's the only bad thing that I'm concerned about now. And that you do have quite a record of real community service and quite a record of attaching with people. There is a lot of mitigation in this case as well. And I'm mindful of the pleas of mercy, particularly from people that are in the arena of dealing with social justice issues that are fighting, seriously fighting, not playing around, not doing games like you were doing, but seriously fighting for matters involving hate crimes of all sorts. And they're asking you for mercy as well. So I'm trying to consider who you are as a person, how you got here, how somehow you strayed away from your family values. You let that dark, narcissistic, selfish, and arrogant side come out. And you persisted with it for years on this case. I'm fashioning the following sentence. And here's your sentence. I'm sentencing you to 
30 months felony probation, and the probation is going to be to this court. You're going to be allowed to travel wherever you want. You do not have to live in the state of Illinois. You can report by phone. I know that uh, if you're going to try to make a living and do some of the things you do, you may have to go to uh, other places, New York and Los Angeles. You can do those things. You will pay restitution to the city of Chicago in the amount of $120,106. You are fined $25,000, which is the maximum fine. And you will spend the first 150 days of your sentence in the Cook County Jail. And that will start today, right here, right now. Mr. Smollett, though the jury found you guilty and I've sentenced you as I have, you have the right to appeal the findings and rulings of the court or ask your sentence to be modified. To do those things, you need to follow a notice of appeal in writing within 30 days. You may also follow a motion to modify your sentence, which may have to be filed in writing within 30 days. Anything not stated in those filings are waived for purposes of appeal. You cannot afford lawyers or transcripts. They would be provided for your charge. Do you have any questions? That's what I was about to say. Okay. I am not suicidal. Okay. I am not suicidal. I am innocent, and I am not suicidal. If I did this, then it means that I stuck my fist in the fears of black Americans in this country for over 400 years and the fears of the LGBTQ community. Your Honor, I respect you and I respect the jury, but I did not do this. And I am not suicidal. And if anything happens to me when I go in there, I did not do it to myself. And you must all know that. I respect you, Your Honor. I respect your decision. Jail time. I am not suicidal. Okay. Mr. Uche, let me inquire. Are there any post-sentencing motions you care to present right now? Yes, Judge. Yes, Ms. The defense would wish to present a motion to reconsider sentence right. and file it in standard. Right. Uh, it, is, it is timely filed. Thank you, Judge. And, and let me say, I've obviously considered the sentence at great length. Uh, and and it, it's timely filed, so it's preserved for purposes of appeal. Motion to reconsider sentence is respectfully denied. Is there another? What, what, one second, Randy. Anything else? Just a second, just a second. Is there going to be a notice of appeal filed? Yes, Judge. Uh, we, we, we're filing a notice of appeal. We're going to be emailing it to the court right now. To the office. You, you're doing it in standard? And are, in you standard. Going to, are you going to be handling the appeal? Uh, Judge, as of now, yes. Well, you have to commit to yes, handling Judge. the appeal. Yes, the yes we're filing a notice okay. All right. Notice of appeal may be filed. Charlotte, now I need the prosecutors to work with Charlotte, the probation officer, to work out probation specifications with the conditions I've just explained. 150 days in the county jail, restitution, fines, oh, and also uh, statutory DNA and costs are ordered as well. That, that's statutory. So you have to fill out the probation specifications. And I'm going to get somebody to help you do that. We need to get that done in standard. Your Honor, yes. Your Honor, if I may, in light of the notice of appeal, we would ask that you suspend the jail sentence in light of the instant filing of the notice of appeal. Did I do what? Suspend the jail sentence in light of the notice of filing of appeal. That would be respectfully denied. Yes, Mark. Yes. Mr. Lewis. If it can be stayed in light of our notice of appeal. No. I'm not saying. No, no, no. The wheels of justice turn slowly, and sometimes the hammer of justice has to fall, and it's falling right here, right now. I'm not staying this. This happens right here, right now. Okay. Charlotte? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you about it. I'll give you okay. okay. All right. Any other matters to come before the court today? All right. Defendants are adjourned.
I am not suicidal. I am not suicidal. And I am innocent. I could have said that I was guilty a long time ago. We don't talk to a lot of actors on this show. Honestly, most of them understand is that we were supporting him with our silence. <laughs> because we understood that this nigga was clearly lying. I'm just afraid of being attacked. Happens to the best. Don't ever forget what happened to that French actor. You know what I'm talking about? Juicy Smouillet. He's a very French, very famous French actor. Y'all never heard of Juicy Smouillet? Joseph Smouillet is an actor from France. And, and he became famous on a show called Empire. One night, he was in Chicago late at night and was the victim. <laughs> He was the victim of a, a racist and homophobic attack. You see, Juicy Smouillet is gay and he is black, not just French. Oh, it was a crazy story. Apparently, when he's walking down the street late at night, two white men came out of the shadows uh, with MAGA hats on, beat him up put some bleach on him and ran off into the night. Bye, have a great time. International news. And everybody was furious, especially in Hollywood. It's all over everybody's Twitter feed and Instagram page. Justice for Juicy and all this shit. <laughs> the whole country was up in arms. He was talking about it all the time on the news. And, and for some reason, uh, African-Americans, we were like oddly quiet. We were so quiet about this shit that the gay community started accusing African-American community of being homophobic for not supporting him. What they didn't understand is that we were supporting him with our silence. Because we understood that this nigga was clearly lying. None of these details added up at all. He said he's walking down the street in Chicago and, and uh, white dudes come up to him and say, hey, man, aren't you that from Empire? Does that sound like how white people talk? No white people. They don't talk like that. They would never say that. It sounds like something that I would say. If you're racist and homophobic, you're not even going to know who this is. You can't watch Empire. 
Can you imagine if you was a police veteran taking this kid's police report? Okay, Mr. Smoulier, please tell me what happened. All right. 2 a.m. He left the house at 2 a.m. It's minus 16 degrees. All right. You were walking. You were walking. All right. And, and where were you going? Subway. Sandwiches? That's when the men approach you? Did you see them? Do you have any? Okay, what, what do they have on? MAGA hats! MAGA hats on in Chicago? Excuse me one second, Mr. Smoulier. Frank, come here for a second. Find out where Kanye West was last night. All right, that was good for comic relief. So now we get to the good part. Not going to keep it too long. This is the part you need to listen to. Remember when we talked about Venezuela? Venezuela wasn't a thing. Let me tell you about a little place. A place that people keep confusing with another place. Have you guys heard of Paraguay? What about Uruguay? Well, one thing people need to know that Uruguay wasn't even supposed to exist. In fact, like I searched to find accurate history that wasn't really there. Um, But some people kind of put it in some kind of concept. Uruguay is the Switzerland of the Western Hemisphere. Uruguay is really where they were chasing Hitler down. Uruguay. Now, I've been to Uruguay. I'll tell you what's funny. So, I remember when I was at Monte Video, um, I was, you know, obviously any time I went to a new country, I would eat local food. Like in Belgium, they have something like Jamaican patties. I would always go after nightclubs would be out and they're pretty late there, right? That's where you can tell the culture of a nation is what's the dirty food they choose to eat when they're drunk, sweaty and done dancing and doing their thing. Well, it was a Saturday, it was Saturday morning slash Friday night, right? I got in late um, and everyone went to the hotel and I needed to get some work done. So I stayed up late and got some work done. And um, as I sat and got some work done, I'm like, oh, you know what? It's like 1.30. I'm going to pop out and go get myself some nice munchies. We were only going to be there for like another day right? We had a meeting that Saturday afternoon and then we were flying out and the meeting was the work that I was doing. And so had to do with energy. So as um, I, I leave, first of all, Uruguayans, they're so chill. They are so chill. Seriously chill. Seriously chill. No one bothered me. The drunk, I mean, they did cat call, kind of felt kind of hot, but no one bothered me or anything. So I went to these stalls where they had like these like gas things and they're like cooking and then it was tortillas, right? So I'm like, oh, cool. I'd like uh, that, but what's in it? Cheese. And I'm thinking, all right, so it's just a, it's a corn flour. Like, what are you using? Because they use a lot of different things, right? And they were like, oh, it's corn. And I was like, all right, so corn tortilla with cheese. Can I put stuff in it? They're like, no, that's it. When I realized that in Uruguay, 
tortilla is not like what we know, like the big taco, right? <laughs> or the little, you know, flat thing. It's actually anything that's like um, anything that's a disc shape. Anything that's a circle is called a tortilla. And the cheese is baked inside it, right? So it reminded me of what we, what my grandma used to make for me, which is called tiganitas. Or um, some people, uh, uh, Native Americans, they have, you know, um, uh, the fried bread, right? It reminded me of that. Um, because everything is in it already. It's like a mix. And it's just like, you know, so that that was it. It was just like a circle that had cheese flavor. It was all right. I mean, all the food there was all right. right? <laughs> it wasn't like, whoa. Um, they like their meat, though, you know. And uh, actually, when I f- went further down to get like a thing, which I called a, a bisteca, which is like a, their burgers aren't ground meat. It's like a piece of steak, right? Um, I was like, damn, you don't even ground it up. They were like, we have so many cows here. Like they have all the cows. Um, I found it really interesting. It was very touristy um, and cordial. How's that? And a lot of people that were there were migrants from European nations like Italy or Portugal or Spain. So I want to introduce you to them for one reason and one reason only. Um, today, uh, I was expecting today that the EU was um, uh, cutting a deal with Venezuela. Um, they had, they made a deal in regards to how the EU and Joe Biden and all of them will deal with energy. It is the most insane thing I've ever seen. Uh, so much is happening in regards to funding. It's a hot mess. Maduro um, and Russia have a good, um, good relationship. So, you know, it's, it's concerning to see how Nicolas Maduro, what he'll be doing, um, considering that Russia and him have, you know, Putin and him have a good relationship. So we have the USA, um, and Maduro that haven't been, but we have to remember that General uh, Lopez had been linked to Putin for a very long time and he flanks Maduro. And so um, the general is very loyal to Maduro, but also loyal to um, Putin. And so they have very good agreements. Putin floated them when we struck down on them to cut the um, the money coming in. So it was um, actually quite odd to see that um, there are European Union nations that have approached Venezuela to work with the U.S. So um, I'm concerned as to how this may actually come because remember, I had told you that Venezuela has over 333 years of pumping oil left. Saudi Arabia had has now about 28. So it's a big deal. Now you're going to say, why Venezuela? Well, well, well. Well, China has very big ties with Uruguay. In fact, a few years ago, there was a lot of controversy with a Chinese port in Uruguay. 
Something about Uruguay that a lot of people don't know is that they legalize same-sex marriage. um, They've legalized marijuana. They've legalized all abortions. They're quite liberal. They have the highest percentage of education. Like these people, 100% education. There's like, I think there's, there's two universities, maybe three, and they're all free. So everyone gets an education. Um, a lot of people think that they can migrate there, but actually I can tell you for a fact, we were there for just three days and we came as private citizens, right? And we had all our papers, but once you get there, there's a shit ton of red tape. Like they want to know everything. The fact that we were meeting with a big private company, you know, was supposed to be easier. Their, their customs don't fuck about. So I'm going to make that clear. They don't fuck about. Now, I have expressed to you many times that the concerns that I've had with China over the years is the extensive investments in buying out uh, state-owned ports and making them their own. I mean, they bought the most ancient Greek port, which was Piraeus, and they did so in Uruguay. So I think um, I did find a video that talked about it at... um, uh, and I wanted to um, share that with you. Un 60% de nuestro territorio es área rural y un área rural importante con por lo menos 300 emprendimientos rurales de, de, de granja. El, el espacio donde eh, se podría llegar a instalar este proyecto de astillero es eh, en la En lo, en lo que es la zona entre Pajas Blancas y Punta Yegua. Y ahora este, está este, intentando tener este, una terminal este, aquí en, en Uruguay, que Yandón Baoma, que hace 5 o 6 años que viene trabajando para ello. Este territorio está protegido por el Plan de Ordenamiento Territorial, que es un plan que se hizo a nivel de la Intendencia este, hace tiempo y que para que eh, se instale un puerto astillero en esta zona tendrían que cambiar la definición del suelo eh, para lo que está planificado que sea este suelo. Básicamente son espacios definidos como de... So, for those of you listening on the podcast and not watching the uh, transcription, basically they're talking about how their land is just there and and they were going to be creating a fishing port. They were taking a fishing port and transforming it into like a commerce area where they would be able to house over 500 vessels. There'd be refrigerated areas and people are very concerned. Now, the the, one of the mayors there said that they're 60% ag. I'll tell you, you know, it's so weird because... It's all ag. They have like two cities and, and that's about it. And then everything else is sporadic. And when I talk cities, we're talking old cities. But for some reason, they have really weird modern like trains that run through the streets. Like the ones that you see in Amsterdam that look like trams, but they're trains. So um, that started in 20, I want to say 2012, where China started flirting and investing and purchasing. Same company, Bing Mao, uh, that has been doing it in Africa and the Mediterranean. So that's number one. But in order to understand um, Uruguay and understand why it's important, there is this video that does an okay job um, of... Hold on. Where's that video? Um, let me see. Um, there it is. 
There's a guy that made this video called Why Does Uruguay, How Does It Exist? Um, it's considered the Switzerland, the new Switzerland that nobody knows about. Please enjoy this information. It's going to be quite important later. You don't need to know history to look at a map and know no. that this country just can't be here by accident. Yet, Uruguay exists. They aren't Brazil. They aren't Argentina. And despite no deep claim to nationhood and their neighbors literally being 10 to 80 times their population, they've remained free and independent for nearly 200 years. Uruguay exists because a cattle smuggler became a national hero. It exists because Napoleon kicked out a king and that guy somehow became an emperor. But most of all, it exists because the people here found a way to balance the forces that surround them. Forces that they know they could forever ride but never hope to control. This season is going to touch on a number of different points of Uruguayan history. But today's episode is simply meant to answer one question. How does it even exist? I haven't seen this whole video, but I just want to tell you, if you guys ever get to have wine, and it's not even that expensive because a lot of people don't drink it, but wine from Uruguay, year 2017, you know, I'm not a wine drinker. I don't drink because I'm a cheap date, but I'm going to tell you, that's some badass wine. Okay, let's continue. By 1680, Portugal was finally free. Rebellion, civil war, and European mass conflict had meant that after nearly 20 years under Spanish rule, they were once again a kingdom of their own. Most importantly, their victory had been so complete that other than their stronghold in North Africa, Spain had even agreed to internationally recognize their total control over the colonies that they'd founded. In many ways, this was the most important thing that was laid out in that entire treaty. As without that one stipulation, Portugal would have had little chance to remain even a continental power, let alone a world one. But it did remain, which meant that in 1680, the colonial dominance of Portugal was supreme. It was their seat at the table of the world. It would let them swing their weight around. Hell, it was their weight to swing. And they, more than anyone, understood the value of keeping those holdings secure. The colony of Brazil was by then enormous. It was unruly, nearly lawless in parts, and absolutely teeming with economic potential. But while the true control lay somewhere between de facto and de jure, Brazilian claims of ownership extended to an area nearly the size of the entirety of Western Europe. But 1680s South America wasn't the same landscape as a generation before. Taking new land was no longer as simple as just setting foot on it and leaving 50 soldiers in the name of the queen. Now it took investment, and post-Civil War Portugal had little of that to fill. So for the incoming king, the plan was to harden up, to solidify the massive empire that they already had. Borders had yet to be truly determined on many of the frontiers, and that is where he would focus his energy. After all, this wasn't an era of Google Maps. For the most part, it wasn't an era of maps, period. So naturally, claims were imperfect and ownership was fluid. In the great game of colonization, it wasn't just finding. You also had to keep. And when it came to Brazil, there were few regions more at risk than the Cisplatina, its southernmost coast. It remained theirs only on paper, and with the growing town of Buenos Aires just across a river, it felt like only a matter of time before the Spanish took what they felt was rightfully theirs. To the Spanish in the Rio de la Plata, controlling the Cisplatina was about more than just enviable pasture land. It was about controlling this river. Trade and security of their capital city meant keeping the land around it under their control, and that meant taking it from the Portuguese and defending it as their own, just as they'd done on every other border of Brazil. 
So even if a map said that it made perfect sense that this be a part of that great Portuguese empire, that really didn't matter that much to the concerned citizens of Buenos Aires. Both sides did what their position naturally demanded that they do. Portugal built a fort just on the mouth of the river Uruguay, basically within sight of Buenos Aires, and in turn, Spain, feeling threatened, struck back. So as Spain waxed and Portugal waned, it swapped hands. Spanish and Italian colonists flooded in, and with the founding of Montevideo and Portuguese influence being pushed back, it became the Banda Oriental, the Eastern Bank. And generation after generation would see that exact same battle fought back and forth. Spanish and Portuguese soldiers marching over the same battlefields, fighting for the same influence over the same ranches. That is, until their worlds collapsed. When Napoleon invaded Iberia in the early 1800s, he sent a shockwave through the entire world. It was perhaps the single most important event in the history of either of the American continents, although for the most part it isn't talked about much beyond Spanish texts, for whatever reason. But with the governments of the Iberian Peninsula destroyed, colonies were forced to make seriously hard decisions. Do they want to try to stay with a crown that no longer exists and hope that something coalesces in Spain that gives them structure again? Or do they want to rebel like the colonies did to Britain in the north? In Brazil, the king had fled from Lisbon and now set his colony as the new center of the empire. He would never return to Portugal, but at least it kept him in control. The Spanish had no such luck. And with Spain in flames, the voices for freedom that had long been crying out in the colonies started to grab some guns and do something about it. Across the Spanish-speaking world, but particularly centered on South and Central America, the collapse saw a surge of violence and civil war. It saw so much violence that today would be almost unimaginable. Republicans fought Federalists, fought Unitarians, fought Royalists. Cities fought cities, cities fought the countryside. Everyone wanted their say, but nobody would get it without a fight. And in Uruguay, then merely a subsection part of the otherwise gigantic Spanish colony of Rio de la Plata, the cries of independence could never be heard alone. With a population in the low tens of thousands, few expected to leave the crisis independent. Few certainly expected to lead themselves. Least of all the man who most provided that independence. José Gervasio Artigas was born to a wealthy family, but all he wanted to do was rustle cattle. You know how it is. There's much to do on a ranch in Uruguay in the late 1700s. It's not exactly like you can go out to the movies. Plus, this was a man of passion. He was an ideologue, a follower of the beliefs of the American Thomas Paine. And so despite his wealth, this was a man of the gaucho, a true cowboy soldier, a guy who put his money where his mouth was, a smuggler, an outlaw. For a rich boy, what I'm trying to say is this guy's hands showed some grit. As a wild young man in a turbulent world, he only ever joined the army to get a bounty off his head. Kind of a join or die situation, he went with the former kind of wise of him. The government needed men who could ride and shoot, and they'd deal with his cattle business later. So at least for Artigas, being drafted wasn't actually that bad. I mean, after all, he already believed in the cause anyway. Plus, saved his life. So they gave him a few hundred men and sent him to fight for his freedom, for their freedom, for everyone's freedom. And, well, from here on out, you could write an entire textbook on the intricacies of the political turmoil of those next few decades. It's easier to just say that he did. He fought everybody. He fought Spain, he fought Buenos Aires, he fought Montevideo, he fought his enemies, and he fought his friends. And despite getting victory after victory, eventually the oldest enemy in the book returned to Uruguay and Artigas lost. 
In the turmoil of the Spanish Civil War, Brazil decided to make hay while those guns shined, and with an expeditionary force larger than Uruguay's army could ever dream of being, almost as large as Montevideo's entire civilian population, there was nothing that he could do. When Brazil crushed Artigas, they exiled him and turned the country back to what it had once been before. With him died Banda Oriental and was raised from the ashes again, Cisplatina. But as always, Brazil's grip didn't last long. Artigas may have been no longer in the country, but the ideals that he was fighting for were in the minds of many other men. He was more a symbolic realization, for the first time perhaps even, of a uniquely Uruguayan mindset. These were the people of the Eastern Bank, colonists caught between worlds. They were not Argentinian, they were not Brazilian. They wished to neither be controlled by the traitors of Buenos Aires or the invaders from Rio de Janeiro. They wish nothing more than freedom, liberty, or death. So in 1825, only three years into Brazilian rule, Uruguayan elites got together and declared their independence for the final time. They called themselves the 33 Orientals, which even though it's unimportant to the story, I think is worth noting, because there weren't 33 of them. And the only reason they said there were is because of that number's meaning to Freemasons. They were trying to signal to other leaders around South America that they were revolting, which is very interesting, but an entirely different episode for the future, one that I'm sure will attract many reasonable and rational comments. With independence declared, naturally the war returned. And while Brazil did its best to hold off the rebels and their backers in Buenos Aires, in the end it just wasn't enough. International pressure and mounting troubles at home led the emperor to sign a declaration of independence for the Eastern Bank. At the very least, if he couldn't control them, nobody else would be able to as well. They'd be a buffer, sort of a state between. And while for the next 70 years, politicians with the not-so-secret backing of both sides would rage civil war in Uruguay, by the end of the 20th century, it was clear that they had failed. For the next hundred years, this nation would exist in a period of relative stability, peace, and most important of all, freedom. Today, the region has few cries for war with their tiny neighbor. Modern Uruguay is now held as an example of a relatively good, human-oriented country in a tough economic climate. Compared to their neighbors on either side, they seem to be doing better on almost every index. They're by no means perfect, and nobody here would ever claim that they are. But Uruguay exists, and not because of some accident of fate either, but because they learned the balance. This is Rare Earth. Well, that was one, but now we need to see why there's a difference between Uruguay and Paraguay, because people keep confusing the two, and it's normal that people confuse them, and I believe in some senses, it's actually quite purposeful. See, when you don't talk about one, but you talk about the other, it's for a reason. The Republic of Paraguay and the Oriental Republic of Paraguay. No way. Yes way. The two South American countries that outsiders often get mixed up that are both between Brazil and Argentina. The way I've always remembered where each is located is P-U. And the P is always over the U. Yeah, I'm a weird guy. What can I say? But while folks confuse the two, they are actually both quite different. For starters, Paraguay is about twice as big as Uruguay. It also has about twice the population of Uruguay. 
Ninety percent of Paraguay lives east of the Paraguay River. Paraguay is also growing at a faster rate. Paraguay is landlocked. Uruguay borders the Atlantic Ocean for crying out loud. But hold up, despite being landlocked, the country has coasts and ports on the Paraguay and Paraná rivers, and the Paraná Paraguay waterway does exit to the Atlantic Ocean. See those beaches? They are in Paraguay, yo. Oh, and Paraguay has the largest navy of any landlocked country in the world. Paraguay and Uruguay don't even border each other. Paraguay borders another landlocked country, actually, Bolivia. Being further south and by the ocean, Uruguay has a more temperate climate. It never gets too hot or cold there, but in Paraguay, it's much more varied. This map sums it up. Southeast Paraguay has a climate more similar to Uruguay, but the more north and west you go, the more tropical it gets. Paraguay actually has two distinct geographic regions divided by the Paraguay River. The eastern region, which is mostly grassy plains and wooded hills, and the western region, also known as the Chaco, which is mostly marshy plains and random big hills in certain spots. Paraguay also has a wet and dry season. Uruguay, for the most part, does not. The median age is younger in Paraguay. The life expectancy is higher in Uruguay. And the infant mortality rate is also much lower there. Uruguay has a higher literacy rate and the highest in Latin America. Uruguay has only two public universities, but they're free, so there's that. And has more residents with college degrees. Uruguay has a much lower poverty rate. Supposedly, it has one of the lowest poverty rates in the world. One source I found put it at just 2.9%, but it's likely closer to 8 or 9%. Still, Paraguay's poverty rate is at closer to 19 or 20%. And Uruguay is known for striving to be a more egalitarian society and having less income inequality than most other countries. In Paraguay, 5% of landowners own 90% of the land. From what I could gather, Paraguay does have lower taxes. And the cost of living is significantly lower there, too. Less residents in Paraguay have internet access. Ah, but Paraguay spends a higher percentage of its GDP on education. Uruguay is much more urban. Paraguay is one of the most rural countries in the Americas. Paraguay is more conservative when it comes to social issues. For example, Uruguay legalized same-sex marriage way back in 2013, and it is still illegal in Paraguay. Uruguay was also the first country to fully legalize marijuana, also way back in 2013. Uruguay has a higher GDP per capita. Ah, but Paraguay has a lower unemployment rate, and its economy is growing at a faster rate lately. Plus, Uruguay's inflation rate is more than triple that of Paraguay. Major industries in Paraguay include agriculture, food processing, textiles, and timber due to its vast forests. Major industries in Uruguay also include agriculture and textiles, but also fishing and tourism. Uruguay is one of the few countries in all of Latin America where the entire population has access to clean water. You can do street view on Google Maps in Uruguay, not Paraguay. What the heck? Paraguay is often called the, quote, heart of South America due to its central location. Oh, and why is Uruguay actually the Oriental Republic of Uruguay? Simply because it's east of the Uruguay River. Well, what do the two countries have in common? Well, I'm glad you asked. First of all, both are 
in the Rio de la Plata Basin, a huge region of rivers that all empty into the widest river in the world, the Rio de la Plata, which of course empties into the Atlantic Ocean. Wide? At one point, the Rio de la Plata is 140 miles or 220 kilometers wide. Hold up. Folks call that a river? Oh, okay. I guess geographers do argue about this. Some call it an estuary, gulf, or even marginal sea. Anyway, this is why most of Paraguay and Uruguay are relatively flat. Without major mountains, both have climates influenced by the wind. And the weather can change quite abruptly. It never gets that cold in both, but it can get pretty hot in the Chaco of Paraguay. Both are named after water. Uruguay is named after the Uruguay River, and Paraguay, um, well, no one knows for sure, but it probably means, quote, water of the Piagua. The Piagua are an extinct tribe native to the area who lived there for thousands of years before European arrival. But they were just one of the many tribes of indigenous people in the area known as the Guarani. In Chaco, there were different nomadic tribes. Of note, the Guaycuru peoples. Meanwhile, Uruguay also had the Chara'a, another nomadic tribe. In the 1500s, the first Europeans to colonize what later became Paraguay were the Spanish, while the first Europeans to colonize what later became Uruguay were the Portuguese. But the Spanish came to Uruguay soon after, and both Spain and Portugal fought for the area. The Spanish explorer Juan de Salazar de Espinosa founded Asuncion on August 15th, 1537. Jesuit missionaries also tried to turn much of Paraguay and part of Uruguay into their own self-governing Christian American Indian nation. This was an alternative many indigenous peoples preferred over the Spanish encomienda system. Throughout the 1600s, the Spanish were able to gain control of both by bringing more settlers and more cows. By the way, today, Uruguay has the most cattle per capita in the world. So while the Spanish made a presence, in 1671, the Portuguese did establish a fort at Colonia del Sacramento in southwest Uruguay. To counter this, the Spanish Spanish founded Montevideo in 1726 as its own fort. Montevideo proved to have a darn good harbor and it grew into a big commercial port city that rivaled nearby Buenos Aires. Both Paraguay and Uruguay were part of the Viceroyalty of the Rio de la Plata, established by Spain in 1776. During the Napoleonic Wars, the British Army tried to take over Montevideo because of course they did. Ultimately, the Spanish had a hard time holding on to control of Paraguay and Uruguay, like they had a hard time holding on to control over the rest of Latin America. 1811 was a pretty big freaking year for both Paraguay and Uruguay. In both, settlers rose up against Spanish rule and declared independence. Paraguay had an easier time becoming independent. A dude named Jose Gaspar Rodriguez de Francia became its first dictator in 1814 and definitely ruled with an iron fist. He was a bit different, though, compared to most dictators. First of all, he had integrity and was not greedy. He tried to create a utopian society based on Rousseau's The Social Contract. He also made laws that reduced the powers of the Catholic Church and even prevented people of European descent from marrying other people of European descent. You heard that right. And finally, Rodriguez de Francia completely isolated Paraguay from the rest of South America. He ruled until his death in 1840. Meanwhile, 
while, Uruguay struggled more for independence from multiple imperial powers. Sure, by 1813, Spain was off their backs, but now the folks in Buenos Aires controlled them as part of the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata. Well, the Uruguayan national hero, Jose Artigas, got fed up with their crap, so he broke with them as well. However, in 1816, the Portuguese invaded and took control four years later, renaming Uruguay Cisplatina after annexing it. But in 1822, Brazil declared independence from Portugal. In response to this, a revolutionary group known as the 33 Orientals declared Uruguay once again independent on August 25th, 1825. And this led to the Cisplatine War. Fortunately for Uruguay, the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata helped them out. The war ultimately led to Uruguay becoming an independent state, but within a few years, it faced a civil war that lasted almost two decades. The 1860s were a turbulent decade for both countries. In Uruguay, another civil war with Argentina helping on one side and Brazil on the other called the Uruguayan War and a far more devastating war in Paraguay. The Paraguayan War fought between Paraguay and Argentina, Brazil, and yes, Uruguay, resulted in the deaths of as many as 90% of all military age men. Some historians estimate the war caused the deaths of half the entire population of Paraguay. Paraguay also lost much territory to both Brazil and Argentina and had to pay an enormous war debt afterward. However, it would have been worse if it weren't for Rutherford Hayes. Huh? Rutherford Hayes? Yep, Rutherford Hayes, the obscure American president, is a really big deal down there. There are statues of him everywhere and even a city named after him. Why? Because of his efforts during the Paraguayan War. Because of him, Paraguay got to keep 60% of its present territory and really survive as a country. Emperor Tiger Star has more about this crazy connection in a new video he just released on his channel. Be sure to check it out when you're done watching this one. Anyway. The Paraguayan War remains the bloodiest war in the history of the Americas. So things did calm down in Paraguay for the rest of the 1800s. And meanwhile, Uruguay had mostly authoritarian rule for the rest of the century. Political instability returned to both countries in the first half of the 1900s. From 1904 to 1954, Paraguay had 31 presidents, most of whom were kicked out forcefully. Since the 1980s, both countries have become more democratic and divided up power to increase government stability. Although, there were certainly setbacks when the economies went sour. Throughout all the 20th century, both countries consistently remained places of refuge for immigrants. Today, both are melting pots because of this. If you look at the ethnic backgrounds of residents in both, however, most trace at least some of their ancestry to European countries. The vast majority of Paraguayans trace their ancestry to both Europeans and indigenous people. Geographers call this group mestizos. And yes, both have minorities of residents who trace their ancestry to other continents. The majority of residents of both countries speak Spanish, although most Paraguayans are bilingual, with even more speaking Guarani, the indigenous language. Believe it or not, Paraguay is the only country in the world where the majority of the population speaks an indigenous language
language. In Uruguay, along the northern border with Brazil, lots of folks speak a mix of Spanish and Portuguese known as Portuñol. Football, aka soccer, is the most popular sport in both countries. Ah, but Uruguay hosted the first ever World Cup. Both have freedom of religion, but the majority of residents in both identify as Christian. Of those, most identify as Roman Catholic. 88% as a matter of fact in Paraguay compared to 37% in Uruguay. Over 41% of Uruguayans are not religious. The largest city in both countries is also the capital, but Asuncion, Paraguay, is bigger. About one in three Paraguayans live in Gran Asuncion, the metropolitan area of Asuncion, while more than half of Uruguayans live in the Montevideo metropolitan area. Both are two of the safest countries in all of Latin America, although the murder rate is higher in Uruguay and has been on the rise in recent years. Both have universal health care. Both are democratic republics, but according to the organization Freedom House, Uruguayans enjoy more political rights and civil liberties. In fact, Freedom House ranks Uruguay as the sixth most free country in the world. Well, this doesn't sound free, though. Uruguay has mandatory voting. Until two years ago, Paraguay did too. Both were founding members of Mercosur, or the Southern Common Market, a South American trading bloc. And yes, both have a wonderful trading relationship. Lots of tourists from Uruguay visit Paraguay and vice versa. Both have a long tradition of pistol duels. A lot of folks on the internet say that pistol duels are still legal in Paraguay as long as both parties are registered blood donors. As it turns out, this is... Uh, not true after all, dang folks on the internet. Both are known for being leaders in the world for their use of renewable energies. Around 95% of Uruguay's electricity comes from renewable sources, and check it, Paraguay creates the highest percentage of renewable energy per capita in the world. 100% of Paraguay's electricity comes from hydropower, and it has the capacity to create five times its national electricity requirements. Look at that human achievement. It's the Itaipu Dam, which borders Paraguay and Brazil, and it's the largest hydroelectric energy producer in the world. And finally, residents of both countries have no beef with each other, so why am I comparing them then? Because of their similar names and similar histories. And yes, those not familiar with the two wonderful countries do get them mixed up. But hopefully, this video helps put that to an end. Isn't it interesting that countries that you didn't even know of held in high esteem people that were congressmen in the United States and governors in the United States, actually someone that's found on your dollar coin. And what's interesting is, is that once you see them start moving into Bolivia, right? It's game over. Uruguay gets unmasked. And I'm going to show you a short clip of John Kerry in Uruguay. A very long time ago. This is from 2014. Good afternoon. Uh, it is uh, uh, it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome His Excellency, the President of the Oriental Republic of Uruguay, uh, President uh, Jose Mujica. Uh, yesterday, we had the privilege of meeting with uh, President Obama. Uh, and now today, I have an opportunity to discuss with he and his ministers the issues of concern. Where's our 
We have simultaneous interpretation. Is yeah. That's good. Okay. Uh, I just we have simultaneous, so I'm just making sure we're on the same wavelength here. Uh, Uruguay is a country that is known for promoting peace and freedom and democracy and particularly uh, for promoting a strong social agenda in order to deal with the problems of uh, growing an economy and providing equality of opportunity for people. Uh, I very much look forward to collaborating uh, with Uruguay in this initiative as we go forward. And the president and I and his ministers will discuss today uh, ways in which we can promote uh, racial, ethnic, and social equality. We will be signing a memorandum of understanding during this visit that will be signed by Assistant Secretary Roberta Jacobson tomorrow. Uh, in addition, uh, we are working to expand educational exchanges. President Obama has a major priority of 100,000 strong, which is an effort for students from the United States to go to Uruguay, and students from Uruguay to come here. That is the best form of diplomacy. It's the best way to build a relationship, and it's the best way to grow opportunities between our countries. So we very much uh, look forward to expanding our discussion today uh, on these social issues, and we're very grateful. Uruguay is an old friend, and we are very, very privileged uh, and happy to have the president here today to talk about how we grow this relationship going forward. And we're grateful to you, Mr. President, for taking the time to come by. And now I recognize the president if he wants to make a few comments. I would like to offer our recognition because we know what this nation means to all of us. Sir, you know that our country is uh, going toward an electoral process. And I think that the next government will have open doors in order to make sure that there is a technical scientific cooperation because our country needs it. And in actual fact, we are going through a major process of development and we want to make sure that we use this to the utmost. We also don't have the necessary technical training in at the intermediate and highest levels in our country. Therefore, this type of cooperation is very important for us because it's easy to talk about democracy, human rights, freedom, but a lot of that has to do with the material conquests that our society can achieve and that our society is able to distribute wealth. And we have to make sure that we have the political will to make sure that this distribution takes place. So when we talk about justice and equality, amongst human beings. We know that this is a very long, long road. We have to do our part and then there will be others. There will be others. I have very much to thank all the universities, the qualified 
people in society, the researchers, the researchers in this society, I really do have very much to thank them for because they are sowing seeds in our Americas. Thank you. Thank you. Now we're going to have a chance to be able to have our conversation. Gracias. Muchas gracias. Okay. We're going to go this way. Thank you. Wow. He looks very defeated, doesn't he? Well, let me give you a little bit more insight. And this is all information that you will find useful in the coming months. All useful. Where else did you see the president goes from the office and people are getting crazy, expressing love and being touched? This is what I don't know. I'm 60 years old and I've never seen this. The goal of the movie is to show unique, a unique person that history of 20th, 20th century and especially in the next, next century. They made a documentary about him. So I just wanted to share that. You guys can look into that at your own time. You know, yesterday when I put out the stuff on meningitis, I gave that to people that want to dig and have no news to talk about because, <laughs> you know, that's how they operate. So, so this is for us because we're going to expand on this in a couple weeks. This is Simon Romero reporting from Paraguay. I traveled to the outpost of Nueva Germania, New Germany, to see what had become of an attempt in the 19th century to found an Aryan empire in South America. Y se habla mucho alemán en esta en esta zona. Sí, antes era mucho, pero ahora ya son todos mezclados con paraguayos. In the 1880s, Elizabeth Nietzsche the sister of the famous German philosopher and her husband, Bernard Forster, sailed up the river to this spot in the jungle. Back in Germany, Forster had advertised a new world paradise for the white race, and families chosen for their genetic purity followed him to found a German colony. Pero no salió. Y muchos murieron por enfermedades. No hay doctor, nada. Podían sobrevivir algunos. Algunos volvieron otra vez a Alemania. Algunos se suicidaron. Facing the fury of some colonists, Forster killed himself in Paraguay in 1889, and Elizabeth Nietzsche returned to Germany. But some German families stayed, and more came in later decades. After generations of intermarriage between German descendants and locals, the culture in Nueva Germania is basically Paraguayan with a few German flourishes. The last staunchly German district lies a few miles away from town, down a dirt road. On a recent afternoon, Guillermo Fischer and his wife, Delia, were preparing to slaughter a pig. The pig was destined for smoked German sausage, or worsts. Delia, who is Paraguayan, has learned many German recipes. 
She has also learned to speak and read German from her mother-in-law. Back in town, school is taught in Spanish with basic German classes twice a week. Some people in the area still hold to the founders' beliefs in German superiority. Siempre me siento bien porque siempre dicen que los alemanes son mejores que los paraguayos. Encima ya con sus costumbres y con su trabajo. Alemanes siempre se, ya se mezclaron mucho con los paraguayos. Ese es el problema. Que no, no, no podían mantener la raza. Pero es en todo el mundo, es así. Alemanes siempre salen por la cabeza en primer lugar del mundo. Como, como, bueno, según, según los expertos en esto, ¿verdad? Dicen que los alemanes tienen la mayor parte del juicio del mundo y de eso después están los coreanos. O sea que lo, así, los japoneses. Y los paraguayos están en la última generación. Others here say that having mixed ancestry, exactly what the founders feared, is a source of pride. Hernán and María Hauke are German on their father's side and Paraguayan on their mother's. Ahora ya hay una mezcla. Anteriormente era más los alemanes acá y los paraguayas así, ¿verdad? Pero eh, hoy en día ya casi normal. Pues ya no somos este así rubio con ojos azules, una mezcla de moreno, ojos verdes, paro. Una raza muy especial en realidad. That was a report by the New York Times in 2013. Now for the last thing that is important that people take a look at. This happened in 2017. I want you to focus on this. The Uruguayan coastal resort of Punta del Este is a chic, world-famous summer destination. This week, the focus is on ties with China. On the agenda at this China-Latin American business summit are a whole series of meetings and conversations over a number of key areas, including agro-business, services and renewable energy. Uruguayan President Tabare Vasquez opened this session speaking about the need for a win-win relationship between the region and China. Distance and cultural barriers may be obstacles, he said, but China is vital to this region's economy. Today, China is the champion of world trade and a motor of global economic growth. Uruguay has a population of around three and a half million people, but 17 million hectares of land suitable for farming. 80% of its exports are related to the agricultural sector, and it's here where Uruguay is looking to expand its relationship with China. At the Agricultural Research Institute, INIA, investigators have begun developing a new type of high-protein soy. The genetic material is from China, part of an agreement between the countries signed six months ago. This project is aimed to develop varieties of soy adapted to grow in our conditions, but it is soy that is for human consumption. The aim is to provide for the Chinese market. 
The process of developing the soy could take up to 10 years, though China and Uruguay are sharing technology that could reduce that time frame. Uruguay has been chosen for this project because, unlike larger soy exporters, it does not use transgenic soybeans. INEA President José Luis Repeto says this agreement represents an important landmark for the country. This is a shift in the production model. We're looking to sell better quality rather than just a larger quantity. This is a product that adds value through the technology already included, not in the process of harvesting, but in the planting itself. Uruguay is also working to improve the quality of other exports. On Friday at the conference, China and Uruguay signed a new deal for tracking beef shipments. Uruguay's agricultural minister says half of the country's beef is sold to China. 20 days ago, China's government said that China's supply of goods in the future must be green, safe and traceable. It has also signaled out Uruguay as a country of traceability with beef, so we are earning prestige. This conference continues over the weekend, providing more time for Uruguay and the region to cement ties with China. Joel Richards, CGTN, Punta del Este. China, 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 China. But then you have to just think, why are they all going to the southern hemisphere? China has done some heavy investments in the south. Now you're going to start seeing that Biden's going to make a pivot that way too. And we're starting to see it with this tap to Venezuela. The minute you see him bring Bolivia in, the next is going to be Paraguay. And that is how they're going to move down. See, Russia's north. I don't know how to... Just keep in mind that once you see in the news that Uruguay and Paraguay are starting to be part of the conversation, well... That's when things are not going to be looking good for the rest of the world, for us. We will be fine. It's the greater plan. Now, I'm not saying uh, that China, well, they are expansionists, but they're patient. They don't go in and take over. But if you heard it correctly, how are the Uruguayans called? They're called Orientals. Orientals. Now many will say whatever, but again, Orientals. So to this is the first introduction to that. Remember, just like I did with Venezuela, where I just introduced you to fun stuff about them before I laid it out on the energy. Food access is what you need to look at. Why are they coming to South America? Why are they all looking to South America? Have they abandoned Europe? Have they abandoned Africa? Why are they looking to South America now that the world is literally on fire and boards and borders are being redrawn? You don't see it yet, but you're starting to see it. So on that note, I hope that gave you some information and some new insight. But 
you know, Uruguay got most of their vaccines from China. Uh, the U.S. is now starting to push the Pfizer vaccine, which was weirdly de- unlisted from some stock exchanges today. And while everyone's going nuts about Ukraine, that's a distraction. And it's not the target. And another thing, I want you to ask yourself, why would, now check this out. Uh, let me put it this way. So the United States of America, no, that's not a good example. Let's take the European Union. Let's pretend that, you know, Germany was broke, but Germany was trading with Italy. It's not like, you know, they'll be like, hey, Italy, give us, you know, 20 pizzas and we'll pay. But they invoice, right? Countries invoice each other. Well, another tidbit that you should know is that Venezuela owes Uruguay. $61.8 million in dairy products. And guess what? That came from Uruguay and sent it to Venezuela when they were broke. So the question that one should ask is, why is it that Venezuela is not paying back Uruguay for the $61.8 million in dairy See, the way governments work with big companies, it's kind of like when we sell our milk to Canada, there's government guarantees. Um, well, it doesn't count for the U.S. because we work different. But with, within countries, like between, like, um, let's say, uh, Italy and Greece, if the nation of Greece relies on Italy for pizza and Italy relies on Greece for olives, right, there's going to be a country-backed agreement. Right now, they're actually in court. And who's going to oversee the court? Where, you know, Uruguay, a private company that was guaranteed by the Venezuelan government to pay the the Uruguayans, right, you know, isn't paying them. This is a big deal. So, um, Venezuela not only did it to 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 him, uh, to that company um, in Uruguay, but they've done it to other countries. So the question is, now Biden's throwing his weight in there. So Venezuela owes money to Uruguay, owes money to Peru, and owes money to Argentina for food. And we're talking 20, 30, 40, and in the case of Uruguay, 60, over 60 million. Who's going to pay for that? Where are they going to sue? Who's going to do it? Because they gave it to them so their people won't go hungry. And now we have Biden coming in, nestling in with Venezuela, trying to get Venezuela to flip on Putin. And that's not going to happen because the general of Maduro is really tight with Putin and they're friends. So who's going to pay for it, guys? Hmm? I mean, we paid for LGBTQ shit in Pakistan where they throw their gays off their roof. Who's going to pay for it? So now you're going to see that Latin America is going to start coming into the focus in the summer. And I want you to remember Uruguay. And when the minute you hear them talking about Bolivia and then Paraguay, they're coming down the map. Focus. This is how they take your money. This is how they escape. No deals. We must trust in God because ultimately he does have the last say. God bless. 
They separate us and they call it social distancing. It's actually a bigger plan. It's called social conditioning. They took away our privacy. There's always someone listening. The elections planning riots for the citizens. The government has always lied. It's history repeating. But the problem is the schools dumb you down so you believe them. If you try to speak the truth inside a tweet, then they delete it. Whole administration Satanists who claim they praise in Jesus. Every year there's a new name for enemies that we're facing. It's Al-Qaeda, then ISIS, and now American patriots. Who would have thought those who love the country the most would be hated on by folks who call America home? Both political parties are equally just as evil. They've been working for themselves. Don't give a damn about the people.